3: and Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: The following podcast contains subject matter that may not be suitable for all listeners.
4: State recognized presence of jury. We do, Your Honor.
1: And does the defense. Yes, sir, we do. On July 5th, 2011, The nation was riveted by media coverage coming out of Orlando, Florida, where a packed courtroom was anxiously awaiting the verdict in the Casey Anthony trial. Good afternoon, ladies
4: and gentlemen of the jury. Have you reached a verdict? Would a defendant rise along with counsel? Madam Clerk,
1: you may publish the verdicts. Anthony was charged with first-degree murder in the gruesome death of her two-year-old daughter, Kaylee.
0: In the circuit court for the Ninth Judicial Circuit in and for Orange County, Florida. State of Florida versus Casey Marie Anthony. As to the charge of first-degree murder, verdict as to count one. We, the jury, find the defendant not guilty, so say we all. Dated at Orlando, Orange County, Florida, on this fifth day of July.
2: Immediately after the not guilty judgment was read, Orange County prosecutors sat Stunned. The verdict sparked outrage and condemnation across the country.
1: To this day, the Casey Anthony trial is one of the most talked about murder trials and media spectacles in the past two decades, mostly because of its controversial verdict.
2: But what few people know is that just two weeks later, in that same exact courtroom, the district attorney's office was slated to try another high-stakes case one with a conclusion that still sparks controversy a decade later.
1: On the face of it, it looked like a case about a husband and a wife, a multi-million dollar fortune, and a mysterious act of violence.
2: Here's how prosecutor Robin Wilkinson presented the case to the jury in her opening statement.
5: Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, in every marriage there is the face to the public and there's what goes on behind closed doors. There are problems in every marriage. Some are bigger than others. This case is about Diane Ward and James Robert Ward, the defendant who goes by Bob. You'll hear that Diane and Bob Ward lived in 2009 somewhat of a privileged life. They lived on Isleworth Country Club Drive. They had two children, Mallory Ward, who's in college, George Washington, in Washington, D.C., and Sarah Ward, who was at the University of South Carolina.
2: Wilkinson goes on to paint a narrative colored by the financial crisis the Ward family was facing and how this crisis led to an alleged murder on the evening of September 21st, 2009.
5: You'll hear going into the summer of 2009, Bob Ward's company's land resources, along with a conglomerate of other different companies, have been involved in a bankruptcy. And you'll hear by 7.50 in the evening, though, Diane Ward laid on the floor of her master bedroom in her own blood shot dead on.
1: But when we take a closer look, there is a lot more to this case than what appears at first glance. There are several aspects which raise multiple questions, not just about the mystery of what actually happened that night, but questions about our justice system. How true is the presumption of innocence? And how can the media shape a high-profile case?
2: Prosecutor Robin Wilkinson continued.
5: Ladies and gentlemen, this case is about the fact that it was Bob Ward that shot her almost dead between the eyes, because a 911 call came in. There was an emergency.
4: I just shot my wife. I believe that they argued, and he picked up a gun, and he shot her.
6: Not a single person that knows my family that he did this.
7: He was a very smart person, but the other side was the nasty side.
8: This is not a murder. This is the opposite of a murder scene.
5: If this was some tragic accident, wouldn't he have tried to look for a pulse?
7: There is not physical evidence, and you have a trail of people who didn't do their goddamn job.
8: There's a verdict in the murder trial of Isleworth millionaire Bob Ward. Do you think this was an accident or a murder? I I really can't say.
2: From Discovery Plus, ID, and Joke Productions, this is Unraveled, Mystery at the Mansion, a nine-part podcast that takes a deep dive into the story of a family torn apart. Trial turned into a media spectacle and investigates the mystery: what really happened to
1: Diane Ward? Shortly before eight p.m. on the night of Monday, September twenty-first, 61 thousand nine, sixty-one-year-old Bob Ward was on the phone with nine-one-one.
9: Hello, what's the emergency?
4: I just shot my wife.
9: You
4: just what? I just saw my wife. Where's your wife? She's right here on the floor, placed since my other.
2: Bob Ward had called for help to be dispatched to his four million dollar mansion in Isleworth, Florida, a luxury community located on a private island just outside of Orlando. Dispatchers from several departments were trying to figure out what had happened to his wife, Diane Ward.
4: Where where is she
6: breathing?
4: No, she's dead. You know that for sure. I think so, yes.
1: Diane had been Bob's wife for the past twenty-six years. We're going to play you more of this phone call in our next episode. But suffice to say, it will become one of the most talked about pieces of evidence in this case.
2: Shortly after arriving on scene, sheriff's deputies find the body of 55-year-old Diane upstairs on the floor of their master bedroom. Outside the residence, deputies put Bob Ward in handcuffs and take him back to the station for questioning.
4: Be back in just a few minutes and talk to your you, I just gotta step out.
1: And... Okay. <sighs> a couple hours later, Bob makes another call.
2: This time, it's to his brother-in-law, Glenn Sari, who's married to Diane's younger sister, Paula. Paula still remembers that call like it was yesterday.
9: Well, it was like right around midnight, and my husband and I were in the bedroom. I was going to bed, and the phone rang.
4: Hello? Glenn, it's Bob. Listen, I'm in a room right now in Orange County, and I'm speaking to Brian Cross... Nice gentleman. He's a detective with the Orange County Sheriff's Office. Uh, Diane's dead.
10: Oh, no.
9: And I hear my husband say, oh, no.
4: It was a very tragic accident. Um, And other than that, all I wish I could do was go fucking shoot myself in the goddamn head and go on. But right now, I have two kids that we have to somehow keep sane. Yeah. I don't really know exactly how to handle them right now. How did it happen? Well, that's another story. But right now, their mother's dead.
9: My husband says, I, I don't even know how to tell you this. He says, it's your sister. And I'm like, my sister? And he he told me that you know she had been shot, and she was dead. I mean, I just immediately shut down. I felt my blood pressure drop. I started crying and started getting sick to my stomach and it it was just i I can't even i I can't even tell you there there's there would be nothing to prepare me for this because. This was never supposed to happen. It happens to other people. You know, it would never be my sister. And then I just fast forward. I start playing everything out in my head. What am I going to do to tell the girls?
1: Hours later, Diane and Bob's oldest daughter, Mallory, is jolted awake by her phone five minutes before her 7 a.m. alarm was set to go off.
7: It's my aunt. And I'm like... That's weird. Like my aunt, like never called me. She's like, I need you to go to to pack a bag. You need to um, get on a plane and fly down here. And I'm like, what's what's going on? And she's like, there's there's been an accident. They don't really know anything. Like, but that there had been an accident and um something maybe happened with my mom. And I like got my face in my hands and I'm. It was basically just, like, praying, saying, like, I'll, I'll do anything, like, whatever I can do to be better, like, I, I'll do it, just make sure that, you know, she's okay, please let her be okay, like, I just, I need her to be okay, like, I, I didn't cry, but I was like, I have to call Sarah.
6: Mallory called me right before seven in the morning, she said, auntie's about to call you, you need to answer the phone. I just kept
9: trying to think, is there a way I can put it off, like, make her think. Tell her it was an accident and I don't know anything else, you know, until she could get down here. How do you say something like that to someone on the phone? I mean,
1: it,
6: it was horrible. My aunt calls and she wouldn't tell me if she was alive or dead. It was terrifying. Where was my dad? Was he taking care of her? Is, has something happened to him? That was so just in shock about everything. I didn't understand what was going on. No way to get answers because my aunt would just hang up the phone.
2: While Paula was struggling with the news of her sister's passing, reporters had found her home phone number and were asking for a comment. Paula felt she had to tell Mallory and Sarah about their mother before they saw it on the news, but actually doing it was another
1: matter. At 10 a.m., Mallory spoke with her aunt for the third time that morning.
7: I asked my aunt I was like what's
9: going on she like, there was a gun involved I said I'm really sorry I said I
1: said your mother died
7: and I was like alright and um, I got off the phone with her
1: Mallory's mind immediately shifted back to her sister Sarah she picked up the phone to call her
6: I was like is she dead and she had to tell me yes
7: Sarah hung up the phone didn't even say
6: anything to me. Just hung up the phone. I threw my computer across the room because we had been looking at hospitals to see if she, someone had taken her in. It was just awful. At some point, my coach showed up and I just remember getting drugged. <laughs> they gave me Xanax to calm me down. I was a wreck.
7: I remember going like into the bathroom and like sitting on the floor and like trying to throw up because I felt all of a sudden I just felt so ill I was like my god I just spoke to her like you know I, I talked to her four times yesterday and now I'm like oh my god I'm never gonna talk to her again my life totally changed when I got that phone call from my aunt me getting that phone call was when you know everything that ever happened before that moment suddenly is gone suddenly like you're now a different person than you were when you went to bed last night it changed the entire course of my life. It changed It changed the person
2: I would become. And the bad news kept coming. Not only did he say I shot my wife three times during that 911 phone call, but his story continued to change during the interview with the police. So those inconsistent statements are the toughest challenge for defense.
7: I had this first moment where I was like, are you fucking kidding me? And then, I, then you sit there, And you say, no, I know my dad. I know this is, I know there's more to what happened.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? By the morning of September 22nd, 2009, the news had started spreading that a wealthy real estate developer had been arrested for the murder of his wife.
6: I found out about my dad being arrested on the news. Beth, my dad's assistant, had told me, don't look at the news, and so naturally I had my phone, so I looked at the news, and on the news it said, Isleworth Millionaire Bob Ward arrested for the murder of his wife, and then in quotes, I just shot my wife.
2: Sarah's reaction to their father's arrest was different than Mallory's, and that's because seeing this story in the news made her fear that it could be true.
6: It hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, I couldn't believe it. And at the time, I was on so much Xanax, I didn't know what to believe. I just didn't know what to believe because I couldn't reach him. I couldn't talk to anyone.
1: While Sarah tried to figure out her next move, Mallory headed down to her aunt's home.
7: My squash coach drove me to the airport with my friend. I sat down on the floor of the airport, leaned against his payphone, and put my face on my hands and just started sobbing. And I think like, and I cried like intermittently all the way like on the flight down, just sobbing.
2: By the time Sarah and Mallory convened at their Aunt Paula's house the following day, they'd all come to the same conclusion.
9: The girls and I were on the same page. There's no way their father killed their mother.
6: My dad loved my mom so much. I mean, he just thought she hung the moon. I mean, he really did. He would have done anything for her. But we still didn't know what happened. You know, we couldn't think it was either suicide or an accident because we know he didn't do
1: it. Nothing in their young lives had prepared Mallory or Sarah for news like this. Life at home had always been good, if not more than good.
6: I was very fortunate growing up. My parents were great. I mean, we just had the best time together. I just, I just remember laughing all the time. And my friends and my sister's friends, always wanting to be over for dinner because it was always hilarious. And my mom always would cook a good meal. She was very Italian. She would always just try to feed you anything.
0: We had dinner together every
7: night. It was always important to my mom. My dad was home 95% of the time for dinner. I was a tomboy growing up, so my dad would get home from work. And in his, like, Slax and his button down, and just stand in the front yard and throw baseball with me.
6: When we were really young, my sister was definitely the favorite of my mom's, and I was always like the daddy's girl. But then I grew up and fell in love with horses, and there was a barn next door, and she liked horses. So then all of a sudden, mom and I were spending so much time together.
2: Bob and Diane were very involved, loving parents, but Mallory and Sarah say they were also very devoted to each other.
6: My mom and dad just always had the best time together. They were always laughing. I remember like the weekends at the lake house were just incredible and so much fun. It was just really worry-free. Like we all got along really well and enjoyed each other's company outside of the typical teenage angst.
7: They were just easy to be around. They weren't Um, All my friends actually called them mom and dad and my dad was this kind of like goofball jokester
6: he was always just having fun with us he would have the music blasting in the afternoons and we would be having dance parties in the house my dad really enjoyed i think making people
7: laugh he wanted to make people happy and he wanted to be a good dad a good provider and a good husband My mom had a way of making you feel like you were the only person she would ever talk to. When she was talking to you, nothing else mattered.
1: Bob and Diane had met back in the mid-80s while working for the same real estate development company in Atlanta. About a decade after getting married, Diane encouraged Bob to mortgage everything they had so he could strike out on his own.
7: My dad started his business from the office of our house. I mean, it was nothing. Like, he started this company and made every dollar that he did.
6: My mom was super supportive of him and really wanted that to be something she could help him accomplish. And he was just so grateful for how supportive she was of him. As
2: the business grew, Bob and Diane recruited Diane's sister Paula to help his company, Land Resources, develop Cumberland Harbor a picturesque residential community on the southern
9: coast of Georgia. I guess it was around 2002, maybe. I think things pretty much started taking off. That's when Cumberland Harbor opened here in St. Mary's, Georgia. And it it was very successful. Every year, HGTV builds a dream home that people can register for and win. Well, they picked Cumberland Harbor for the site of their 2004 dream home. You know, it was amazing. As his business grew, you know, obviously, so did the incomes.
6: It was just really incredible to see, like, how the dynamics had changed. Like, I didn't even realize when we didn't have that much money that we didn't have money, but I definitely realized when we had money, we were able to just do so much more. I remember like chartering planes to go down and see family or to go down and see property my dad wanted to see. I remember Mallory getting a BMW for her first car and that being a huge deal at school. And we also had a yacht. All of a sudden we had money and I had really nice horses and we could take these really lavish vacations. And we just, got to experience some really cool things and go to some really cool places and do incredible things. I was so lucky. My dad was able to get some really nice horses for me and a lot of them. So I went from riding a crappy thoroughbred who tried to kill me to having these fancy warm bloods I could go show and win on at the big shows at WEF, at indoors, and do well. I just remember not having to really worry All I was focused on was my grades and getting around in a ring successfully at a horse show. And just feeling secure. Like, I didn't have to worry.
1: In 2007, Bob and Diane made one of their biggest purchases to date. An 8,780 square foot mansion they were buying from golf legend Arnold Palmer. It was in Isleworth, one of the richest zip codes in the country
6: we completely gutted it and redid it and it was beautiful it was like a dream come true for me i got to go live in this really fancy country club and tiger woods is my neighbor and Shaq's down the street it was like the coolest thing ever i was so excited and i could go to the country club and play tennis and play golf i loved it i was so excited Two
2: years later, in September of 2009, the wards moved into the Isleworth home full-time. They had just become empty nesters. Mallory was majoring in history and playing on the squash team. Sarah, on the other hand, had only just started college. But now, plans were being made to visit Bob in jail to find out what really happened to their mom. Here's Paula Sari again.
9: We go to see the lawyer and we tell him, you know, we're going to see Bob and he says under no circumstances did you discuss what's going on and we just looked at him we said what
7: it was um when you go see him you can't talk about what happened and You're like, well, that's weird because we haven't spoken yet and my mom is dead and my dad is in jail, but we're going to sit down and not talk about that.
9: So then I said, um, I looked at Mallory and I said, I said, oh, my God, I said, what are we going to do? I said, what are we going to talk about? So we just kind of make a list of um, things we can talk about and things we can say, because we really were like. Oh, my God, you know, it's their mother, my sister, has just died. We're upset, obviously. We don't want to be in there, you know, crying in front of him or anything.
1: At the last minute, Sarah decided to back out. She couldn't stomach seeing her dad in jail. On Friday, September 25th, Mallory and Paula went to visit Bob, not realizing there was another kind of emotional trauma waiting for them.
7: My aunt and I park, and we get out of the car, and all of a sudden you've got, literally, it's like there are cameras in your face, reporters. Like, I probably had a swarm of like ten people around us, following us in, saying, you know, how do you feel about your dad killing your mom? And you're like, did you just ask someone whose mom just died how do you feel about your dad killing your mom?
9: We are all still in shock. And trust me, this is way, way above my pay grade. I am not, I I don't even know how to deal with this stuff.
2: Inside, Paula and Mallory are allowed to communicate with Bob, but he's in a separate building, so they need to talk via a closed-circuit video system.
7: It was so surreal because you're like, this is ridiculous. I've got to find something to talk to him about for 45 minutes that's not about the fact that he's sitting in jail and the fact that my mom is sitting on a slab at a medical examiner's office right now. To me, it was just needing him to see that I was there for him, that I wasn't going to sit down and scream and cry and, you know, punch the TV screen and tell him, you know, I hate you, you shot my mom in the face.
9: It was the longest 45 minutes of our life. We didn't want to leave before it was time because uh, you only get three visits a week and we ran out of stuff to talk about and and bob said well okay i guess i'll talk to you later and mallory said no dad you know we're not gonna go yet we're not gonna go it was so sad it was like no we're gonna stay with you till the last minute
1: mallory says that the sadness of the situation felt like more than she could bear That's not how it looked to the outside world.
7: I couldn't cry because if I cry, then we're going to have to talk about what happened. I can't do that. So my dad and I defaulted to laughing and joking around because that was all we could do. I needed to give him some semblance of comfort. It sucked.
9: We were trying to keep it, you know, light for Bob. I mean, here's a man who owns a company. He's the president and CEO of a large real estate development company. And he's in fucking jail in Orlando, Florida. Are you kidding me? And his wife, his wife is dead. How do you even process this stuff?
2: To the Ward sisters, the crisis their dad was facing would be short-lived. They were sure he was innocent and that the world would soon see that too.
7: My thoughts were, this will be sorted out like if they have to have a trial okay like that's annoying but i know that he didn't do anything wrong so people will or a jury or a judge will recognize that and so i was just like my dad's not going to go to prison with something he doesn't do we just need to get we just need to get through this
6: i was hanging on to well he's innocent there's no evidence against him we'll go to trial, we'll get this all sorted, he'll come home, and everything will be
1: fine. Only minutes after saying goodbye to Bob, the Ward family discovers that getting through this is going to be a lot more difficult than they ever imagined. According to Paula, the police, fearing another high-profile embarrassment like what happened with Casey Anthony, immediately made the family's private jail visit very public.
9: We had no idea that they give this stuff to the media. Like, we no sooner leave the jail, walk out the door, and they hinted the media. They had the DVDs sitting right there. Here you go, guys. Here's your 6 o'clock news.
2: Three days after getting the call about the death of their mother, the Ward sisters were blindsided again.
1: Just hours after Mallory and Paula's visit with Bob, all three of them are headline news. The sheriff's office released copies of the 45-minute visit. All of the big cable news channels and local news stations edited it down into a series of short clips.
2: And they edited out only the most sensational sections. It was a montage of sorts, which highlighted brief moments where it was clear that Bob, Paula, and Mallory were trying to cheer each other up.
1: There are quick fades and dissolves between some of the cuts. So it looks like the broadcasters really put some thought into this montage.
2: Ratings-wise, this paid off. The public's morbid curiosity about a rich family seemingly acting strangely while in a crisis was insatiable.
1: It also definitely got the attention of a lot of cable TV personalities and legal experts. And they had a field day with this video.
10: Also some video that we have, the jury
1: will not see this video, but this right. is Bob Ward in, in jail, in, in, in a courthouse, talking to his daughter and, and, and laughing. This is right after this happened. I mean,
5: <laughs> it,
0: it's highly bizarre, the behavior. This is Diane's sister and her daughter joking around with him. They're, they're doing a kind of mock striptease. Uh, he is uh,
2: complaining about the conditions of the jail cell.
4: You know, I just would like to get out of this nasty cell that didn't have any water. I mean, this place hasn't been cleaned. I can't tell you when. It's awful. <laughs>
9: well, I'll definitely, I'll definitely get on housekeeping for that. It is important
2: that the jury doesn't see this because it would be more prejudicial than probative. Mm-hmm. And yet, it probably shaped the way that the prosecution decided to go forward with the case because his behavior is truly inconsistent with the story he gave.
9: When it came out on the news, I will tell you something. we, No one was more shocked than we were. We really and truly were.
8: I've covered a lot of murder cases, and I know that I've obviously never been through this sort of trauma, and I don't I think most of us haven't. And so it's, it's I'm very delicate when I try to judge people's actions in what would be a moment of, of trauma.
1: That's Drew Petrimo. He was a general assignment reporter for the ABC affiliate in Orlando at the time.
8: But looking in from the outside, it would be very hard for a normal person to try to fathom having that kind of reaction to such serious circumstances. There's just this playful, jovial, messing around attitude that would also seem foreign to an outside observer.
2: Drew's reaction to the jailhouse videos was the same as what was conveyed to the public.
8: Now, there's a part on there where he's pretending to strip tease, he's commenting about the, you know, the lack of accommodations that this and in his cell, how there's not running water and that he doesn't have the luxury that he's used to. His daughter says, you know, this must be a big change for you. And there's just a really kind of playful banter between, um, you know, Mr. Ward and his daughters and his sister-in-law, which seems very strange. There are other parts of it where he seems to be more sensitive to the fact that, you know, his wife was gone, but Um, It's the strange parts of this video where he has this playful um, demeanor that really kind of lit a fire in the story and, and made it national news and for a lot of people cast Mr. Ward in a bad light.
1: The videos ended up going viral and overnight the Wards were villainized on social media.
8: The jailhouse visit really bewildered a lot of people in the public because This is the husband and the daughter whose wife and mother had died in the days before, and he's in jail for allegedly murdering the mothers. It just seems so strange to people. And I would say that really made the public suspicious of them.
2: But according to Paula and Mallory, the public didn't get an accurate view of what went on during that 45 minute visit.
9: Why didn't they show the part of Bob saying, well, okay, I guess I'll talk to you later. And Mallory just about in tears saying, no dad, I I don't wanna go yet. We're not gonna go. No, Bob, we're gonna stay here. We're gonna stay here and talk to you till the last minute.
7: If you wanna say taken out of context, the context was me trying to make him feel better that was definitely a clip of what happened. But the context of it was I was trying to make him feel better, not have a creepy relationship with my
9: dad. It was so sad. It it really was. Mallory did not deserve that. She really didn't. She really and truly didn't. I mean, this is a girl that loves her parents. And her mother's dead and she just has her dad. And it, it was horrible. It was heartbreaking. It was absolutely heartbreaking.
0: I think many people have had the experience of having something really awful happening and having this weird, you know, reaction to it. They go, what, why did I say that or do that or why did I laugh at that moment?
1: That's Dr. Gail Saltz, a clinical associate professor of psychiatry Right after the videos were released, she was asked by a cable news show to comment on their behavior. Unlike other media personalities, she had a more compassionate take about what was going on in the video.
0: It's like extreme nervousness and feeling, you know, dislocated from what is, you know, this doesn't make any sense in your life, might cause you to have overwrought emotional reactions that don't fit with the moment, to the outsider.
2: The experience was a rude awakening for the Ward sisters. In their minds, authorities saw them not as victims, but instead as the unsympathetic family of a killer.
7: We were stunned realizing that relationship between the Department of Corrections and the media and how there's just no no privacy for victims or anyone.
6: All of a sudden it's twisted into something it's disgusting, perverted, and not what it is. We were just a very humorous family. And so they laughed for thirty seconds, two two minutes out of forty five. Disgusting.
10: But this public
1: humiliation wasn't even close to the worst part of what the sisters were experiencing.
6: It changed everything. My whole life because was completely derailed. I had so much in front of me and so many things I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to go to the Olympics. I wanted to be the best hunter-rider in the country. And my mom was going to be right by my side. And all of a sudden, all of the hopes, dreams, everything that I had and wanted was just gone. I don't even know if I can finish school. I don't even know if I'll ever see my horses again. Will I ever see my dad again? I didn't know anything.
7: It was difficult because you're like, okay, okay, I, I've got to focus on my dad, but all at the same time, I need to figure out a way to start living knowing that she's not here, knowing that my mom is dead.
6: I started to be the parent, and I didn't really know how to handle that. Everything just kind of fell to me, and I I really didn't know what to do. And struggling with depression as much as I did. I mean, after mom died, I tried to kill myself three times. And I wish I would have been strong enough to say something.
1: After the jailhouse video, the media started producing scathing news packages about Mallory and Sarah, making them look like rich brats, unaffected by their mother's death. All based on nothing more than the fact that they had lived a luxurious lifestyle and hadn't been photographed crying in public.
0: Obviously you have two very young people and you know their mother is dead and their father is is being accused of it. It's hard to think of something a lot more traumatic than that and their reactions could either be you know, not not seemingly make sense to the outsider, but because they're completely overwrought. Or, you know, it could be that they knew something going along that this was not as shocking to them as one would think. It's just, just, no way to know. But
2: was there a way for anyone to know what had happened on the night of September 21st, 2009, in Bob and Diane's master bedroom?
1: In the court of public opinion, Bob was presumed guilty. But Mallory and Sarah, as well as the entire family, including Diane's own mother and sister, had zero doubt Bob was innocent.
2: Two years later, the trial would begin and Prosecutor Robin Wilkinson would lay
1: out the state's case. And the jury would find out what Bob said really happened inside the master bedroom of their Isleworth mansion.
2: Here are some highlights of what you'll hear this season on Unraveled, Mystery at the Mansion.
9: The 911 call.
8: I had never heard anything like it.
4: I was digging in her closet when I found this note. I thought it was a suicide note. Prosecution tried to say,
6: oh, well, you know, they wrote it, but it's her handwriting. When you take that many pills, you're obviously out of your mind.
3: I said, are you serious? You're pulling out a gun and pointing it at me?
10: The anger was breathtaking. I had never experienced anything like it.
5: Bob has these little drops of blood on his shorts and on his shoes. There's nothing on him to show he's reacted anyway.
4: That's not admissible testimony. That's not science.
8: My initial thought was like, wow, they got to do the trial over again.
5: This came through
6: my website. It says, here's the thing, your father's innocent.
0: A debit call
1: from Bob. Hey, Bob. Unraveled is produced by Joke Productions for ID. The executive producers of this podcast are Joke Finciun, Biagio Messina, and Jeff Koontz, along with myself, Billy Jensen, and Alexis Linkletter. Executive producer for ID is Tim Bainey. Additional producing and writing by Margaret Aronson and Mike Gattinella. Our editors are Aaron Frischia and Corey Nye, archival clips courtesy of CNN. The music and score that you have heard in this podcast is by Biagio Messina, Dave Pellman, and the Alibi and Nimble Libraries. Make sure to check for episode two next week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you know, it helps a lot when you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast that you enjoy listening to. Thank you for listening, for your support.